You're listening to Grow Yourself Up, a weekly mental health podcast hosted by Kath Cunahan. I'm a psychotherapist, writer, and speaker working in private practice in London. I specialize in the impact of our own childhood on our parenting and how we can heal and integrate our childhood trauma, wounding, and stress so that we can inhabit our full adult selves. Join us each week as we talk about all things growing ourselves up, how we can tend to ourselves in our parenting, generational healing, and overcoming the impacts of childhood trauma. Together, we will become more self-compassionate, connected, authentic, resilient, and heart-centered, so we can live our own full and beautiful lives. As a listener of this podcast, you're welcome to come over and join the Facebook group. So search on Facebook for Grow Yourself Up. It's a private Facebook group of all the listeners. And did you know there are journal prompts that go along with every episode? So sign up for the journal prompts on kathcunahan.com or go to my Instagram, kathcunahan, and sign up at the link in the bio there. And you will get my newsletter, Nurture, Heal, Grow, which contains all the journal prompts. Looking forward to seeing you in the Facebook group. The podcast is produced each week by the wonderful Audio Cafe. Thanks for being here. Welcome back. It's episode 64 of Grow Yourself Up. Can you believe it? I can't believe we've already got so many episodes. This episode's being released on Tuesday, the 5th of September. And um, such a time of transition. We're transitioning to autumn in the Northern Hemisphere. And if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, where I grew up in South Africa, now you're going into spring. So it's so beautiful this time of year, I think, wherever you are. And I hope that you've had um, a lovely summer or that winter's been manageable for you. And I'm so excited on the on the podcast today to share an episode um, of a podcast that I spoke on um, recently called Lift the Shame. So Lift the Shame is hosted by Crystal Cargis. She's on Instagram. You can find her at Crystal Cargis. She's a maternal health and child feeding specialist. She's a nutritionist. She's a registered dietitian nutritionist, and she's an international board certified lactation consultant and a certified intuitive eating counselor. And Crystal's absolutely passionate about helping moms end uh, the legacy of diet culture in their families, the generational legacy of diet culture, because so many of us grew up watching our mum's diet and learning that we needed to kind of augment and change our bodies and the kind of the, the, the troubled um, relationship with food really begins early on based on how, often how we were fed, um, how our appetite was treated, how our parents treated their appetites and, um, she, her passion is helping moms in eating disorder recovery and generational legacies of food guilt and body shame to raise intuitive eaters and enjoy freedom with food as a family. She's got wonderful content on her Instagram page. Her approach to sugar has really helped me with, um, with how I approach sugar with my girls because I'm passionate about, um, wanting them to have a neutral relationship with sugar. I don't have a neutral relationship with sugar. I would love for them to have this approach of kind of take it or leave it or have some when you want some, but don't use it to make yourself feel better. I am still unwinding the impacts of um, overeating to manage stuff from childhood. And um, 
I think eating is one of the last places many of us get to in terms of trying to really connect to ourselves and allow that connection so we can actually soothe ourselves instead of using food to do that. So Crystal's podcast is called Lift the Shame. So head on over and listen to it. And this episode is all about how um, I'm working in our family to not pass on my unresolved trauma and food issues to my girls and to step away from my own control and pain around food to help them have their own relationship with it, whatever that looks like, unencumbered by um, my stuff. And of course, this is imperfect. So let's dive in. Um, you'll hear that Crystal is actually interviewing me and I can't wait to have her. She'll be a guest on Grow Yourself Up shortly. I am so glad that you're here and tuning in today. I have my first guest on the podcast and I'm so excited to share this conversation with you. And my guest is Kath Cunahan. And it's amazing that we actually connected first on Instagram. So there are still good things that can come out of that platform. I came across her work and just immediately resonated with so many of the powerful and insightful messages that she shares. And her Instagram handle is psychotherapy underscore mum, M-U-M. And Kath is a trauma-informed integrative psychotherapist who works in private practice, and she is based in London in the UK. And I love listening to her podcast, Grow Yourself Up, which I will share all her links in the show notes so that you can connect with Kath and learn from her as well. And also just what she shares on Instagram about the challenges that can come up as an individual who has had various forms of trauma in childhood and how that can resurface when we are parenting. And she really does an amazing job exploring this intersection between our trauma histories and how this comes up when we are parenting. When we started this series on reparenting ourselves around food and our bodies, she was the first person that came to mind. And I can't wait for you to hear this podcast and also just to connect with her beyond this episode itself because she is such a wealth of knowledge. And she's also a mom of two. She has twin girls and she just shares so many personal insights from her own journey and her own experience and her lived experience and how that has shaped her career, which is incredible, just the work that she's doing. I can't wait for you to listen and tune in. Here is my conversation with Kath Cunahan. I am so delighted to have here on the show today, Kath Cunahan, who is absolutely fantastic and such a source of wisdom. And I can't wait to share her with all of you on the show today. So welcome, Kath. We're so happy to have you with us today. Thanks, Crystal. It's really wonderful to be with you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. And it's so funny, you know, Instagram is such an interesting place these days. And that's how I first connected with you. And it's nice to have like an in real life, well, as as real as we can do, because you're over in London and I'm here in California, but so grateful just to get to know more of you and the work that you're doing over on Instagram and I'm so excited to just jump into our conversation for today. But can you start just by telling us a little bit about yourself, the work that you do, and what has led you to do the work that you're doing today? Okay, sure. So I am an, I'm an integrative psychotherapist. I focus on, I specialize in complex trauma. 
and working with parents who've had their own trauma in childhood, so developmental trauma, and how that kind of complicates the parenting process and makes it a lot more challenging, and how can we kind of deal with that in the present moment so that as we parent, we can heal. I trained in integrative psychotherapy, and then I've done a lot of additional trauma training, nervous system training, and training in polyvagal theory. I guess I always knew that kind of people who haven't had their needs met in childhood, if we kind of distill trauma right down to a kind of a basic thing, it's that we don't get our needs met. And you have to spend all your time meeting the needs of someone else when you've never learned to meet your own needs. And that brings up all sorts of stuff. And the legacy of dysregulation that you live with when you've had trauma is, is a very tricky thing to take into parenthood as well. I've always focused on trauma. And I guess I've focused more on parenthood since I've become a parent. Mm. and the complexities of mothering with your own trauma. Because what I see clinically is that so many of us struggle with shame, and I, I too struggle with shame, and that makes everything so much harder. So I'm like really passionate about breaking down shame. I love the name of your podcast, actually. I think that's just a fabulous name. Mm. Because, you know, once we lift that, we see, oh, we're all the same, and, and we're okay, you know. And I think this that kind of loving message, we all need that loving message. Absolutely. Yes. And which which is why I'm so excited and just grateful to have you on the show, you know, because I think so many of us really resonate with that. And when we examine our lives and the things that we've been through, recognize how much shame we've internalized and are now carrying with us in motherhood. So yes. And that brings me to, we're just going to jump right into our first question. And I really want to highlight your podcast because you have a fantastic podcast and I'll make sure that I include the link to that in the show notes because you talk, you know, in depth about so many of these topics that you've shared. One thing that you mentioned on your podcast that really resonated with me is this idea about undoing generational cycles of trauma and shame. And you said something that I thought was so powerful and you talked about how we can't carry all of that responsibility to end so many generations before us and all those cycles, right? Like it's, it's so much pressure to feel like we ourselves have to undo all of that. You talked about looking at it from a lens of shifting the cycles of trauma and shame versus the responsibility of having to end everything. Here on, on this podcast, we talk about this idea of challenging the generational cycles of diet culture and food guilt and body shame to help support our kids in building a more positive and life-giving relationship with food. I just want to hear more about your thoughts around that because I think this is such a powerful message for mothers to hear that you know a lot of us are doing this work and doing this healing work for ourselves in the process are also putting so much pressure on our shoulders to be the ones to have to like end all these things that have come before us. So can you speak to that a little bit and share just some of your insight around that? Sure. Sure. Absolutely. And listening to you talk about the diet culture, even if in your family or my family, we just focused on food, on healing the stuff around food, that would be a massive shift Mm. regardless of anything else, any other cycles we may want to end. And I think for many of us, you know, if we look at the world, all of us have got relatives or, or ancestors who were in wars, 
Some of us have ancestors who were in, in the Holocaust and maybe were in a concentration camp. Some of us have got ancestors who were in slavery. So there's been so much trauma in all of our histories, you know, wherever we've come from, really. And then there's so much other stuff that happens on a daily basis. You know, there might be premature death, sexual abuse, no connection by feelings. Uh, like, like there's so much trauma that happens. And when we, we're kind of probably one of the first generations, so I'm 46, so people who born probably in the late 70s and 80s, we've learned so much. A lot of, there's been so much development in brain science mm-hmm. and in also neuroscience, which sort of supports how important early intervention and early development is. And previously we didn't know that. It's wonderful that we know this and that we can know how important it is to raise our children in a way that's really loving and connects their feelings. Many of us who were raised by parents who just taught us that we needed to kind of get everything right or be perfect. The reason that perfectionism develops is because of shame. And Mm -hmm. shame is essentially not being seen for who we are. So it comes from a developmental perspective. We start to experience shame in about our second year of life. It's when there are too many misattunements that don't get dealt with and there's no repair after rupture. So we land up internalizing a sense of I am bad because No mother, no parent, no caregiver can attune 100% of the time at all. And we know from Edtronics research that lovingly attuning to your child about a third of the time is good enough. That's what we kind of class as good enough parenting. But when we're a perfectionist, which again developed in response to our own shame, we want to get everything perfect and we feel and, the, and perfectionism, I think, is the most common adaptation I see among, among my women clients. We want to change everything. We have a very overdeveloped sense of responsibility. We want to control everything often because that feels like it'll make us safe or make our children safe. And really, there's just no ways we can do it all in one go. So much stuff actually gets passed on to our children epigenetically in our womb. So we wouldn't have even known what we were passing on in terms of you know, nervous system dysregulation. And if we have a very anxious time, then there's more that's getting passed on. You know, if we have a very anxious pregnancy, like so much of this is just welcoming and self-compassion and noticing, oh, I'm doing so well. Like I'm actually giving my children access to their feelings. I never learned about my feelings. You know, no one ever apologized to me as a child. By just even apologizing to your child afterwards when you shout, because everyone shouts, because everyone gets dysregulated, that's a huge, huge thing, massive. Your child learns they are not bad and that they are worth apologizing to. How wonderful. How wonderful to be so humble that you apologize to you that I lose control sometimes. People lose control. Yeah, so to just kind of conclude that, we can't shift everything. It's not possible. It's not possible to break everything because we are healing as we mother And so we have to be so gentle in that process and acknowledge that we're healing and doing our best and that our children will have some of their own work to do. And that's okay. Mm. I love that so much, Kath. And there's so many things in there, so many nuggets of wisdom, but it's so, it's such a fresh breath of fresh air to hear that, right? Because like you said, I think, especially for a lot of the moms who are listening, who are recovering from an eating disorder and also complex trauma that comes with that, there's like a hypervigilance of, I need to do everything possible because I don't want my children to struggle in the same way that I did, especially when there's been such a painful experience around food and body. And 
you know, understanding that there's actually only so much that we can do. And so many things are outside of our realm of control. Like you said, like a large part of it is just biology and genetics. Eating disorders are largely influenced by the genetics that we have. And there is some shame around that. Like I have to, I have to be the one to protect my child from this, but understanding that, you know, there are so many things that we're doing and, and doing right to support our children in, you know, having an experience around food in their bodies or, you know, relationships with, with others, with themselves that we never experienced as a result of us doing our own work, but it doesn't have to be. 100% of the time. Like, I love that Mm -hmm. research that you share that if we can get, if we can get it right a third of the time, that's good enough. And that concept of, of good enough parenting. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more to that concept of, of good enough parenting and what that looks like and how that can be sufficient in supporting attuned relationships and responsive enough relationships to our children where they can trust the relationship that we're building with them. I'm glad that you talked about relationship because that's actually our most important parenting tool. Good enough parenting, I would suggest, is all about nurturing that relationship with our children and showing them respect, being accepting that they are young and that they will do things that are developmentally appropriate. So they might have a lot of, say, meltdowns. For a long time, children don't stop having meltdowns like when they're two or three, it continues on when they're feeling dysregulated or stressed. Often what I see is parents shame their children for developmentally appropriate behavior. Kind of honoring your child in their tricky times is one of the most important things actually, which makes them feel seen. Mm -hmm. And of course we can't do that all of the time because sometimes we ourselves are desperate to go to the loo or we're really hungry or we're exhausted and we just want them to kind of get out of kind of out of our face. And so we may shout or something. We may not contribute to kind of regulating them. We may make the whole situation worse with our own shouting. But good enough parenting means that we accept responsibility for that. We don't blame our children for our behavior. So we don't say, I was cross because you were being so difficult after school. We kind of own that we are the adult in the situation and need to take responsibility for that. And we we model humility and show our humanness. So to sort of say, I'm so sorry I shouted you. I know you were having such a tricky time after school and I wasn't able to be present for you. I felt really bothered because of this and I'm going to work on, you know, not doing that because it it, it models so much that the connection is what's important. And I think that that's the greatest resource for our children, knowing that that they've got a safe connection because that sensitive attunement is what they carry around with them outside in the world to know no matter what's going on in any situation, because we can't protect them from everything, you're right, but to know in their heart that they've got that deep sense of safety in the, the connection, like the relationship. And I think that another thing about good enough parenting is letting ourselves live with ease. Mm. And I'm sure you have a lot of stuff to say about this with regard to food, but, you know, a lot of mothers go into motherhood thinking, oh, I need to puree all the organic vegetables in the world and like have, you know, this on the menu for the child or whatever. And and using our child's eating as a demonstration, some of our motherhood, I know that I did that. And I think that there we have to kind of think, you know, maybe it's much easier for me if I buy a pouch. I don't have to, I'm not like so stressed or trying to control what they eat. I'm just going to give them this pouch. A friend of mine, I talked to her and she said she used to feel such shame going into the supermarket 
and buying. There's a brand in this country who are called Ella's and they have lots of different organic things. And honestly, my twins used to exist a lot on that at some points, mm-hmm. you know, and, and other people might think that's awful, but for me, that was, I had to introduce that for ease so that I could actually be present and be connected and not be all stressed about getting the sweet potato perfect or mashing up the courgettes or I don't know, whatever I was trying to do, you know? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And also imperfection. I think that's one very good thing about it, about good enough parenting is that we allow ourselves to model imperfection. And by that, I mean making mistakes and normalizing that with our children because if we are kind of invulnerable and, and never demonstrate, oh, I spilled the milk or I spilled the water or we scream if we drop something or they break something, then there's kind of that, that idea of if I break something or if I make a mistake, I'm bad. So I think really allowing kind of the messiness and just kind of welcoming that in. And, and that's really a process because many of us, you know, you talked about hypervigilance. We have an exaggerated startle response and we are very hypervigilant. And when my kids drop something, I often go like, oh, and so that that kind of, they then look at me with their little faces about like, what is she going to do? I've really practiced like, oh, that's okay. Well, that's okay. That's what happens when, you know, you spill your milk, come and get some kitchen towel and go and clean it up. I mean, and they don't clean it up very well, but then I got, but, and so it's so loving watching them do that to each other then. Hmm. That's so beautiful. <laughs> I, I love, I love your insight. And you know, it makes me think because I hear a lot of that in conversations that I have with the moms that I work with, especially when it comes to food, you know, like this worry, like if I don't get it right, what's going to happen? And there's so much power in the repair and also in just letting our kids see us be human and making mistakes and giving them permission to be human and make mistakes as well. And just create that safe space for them to learn and explore. Yeah. And, and that's so beautiful. And I think it gives so much freedom. And like you said, helps us live at ease when we're not always on this high alert of, I need to do it right. I need to do it perfect. I need to get it right all the time. Yeah. And that makes me think of, of just another question here. So many of us are trying to show up for our kids in ways that we were never cared for. As children, I hear you talking about a lot of these things too, and and learning to hold space for our children and their meltdowns and their big feelings and their questions. I know for me, and this is something that has come up a lot in my motherhood journey that really set me on this path of self exploration and just getting more help around this because I realized a lot of things in my children were becoming very triggering for me and digging into that more understanding why, you know, like, okay, I am, my body is reacting to my child's meltdown, but it's not because of my child. It's because nobody held space for me as a child when I was experiencing those episodes and those big feelings. And I think having that perspective and understanding that has just helped me have so much more compassion for myself. And I just think about so many of us who are trying to do this work and show up for our kids and learn how to be responsive and attuned for them when we never had that modeled to us. And so I'm curious just your insight around how we can start to practice being attuned to our children or be responsive to them or show up for them in ways that we never had modeled to us as children ourselves. Yeah, I think I think that's a lot about 
how we are with ourselves. So I think this being able to turn up for our children means we need to learn to turn up for ourselves Mm. and to deepen into what our body is telling us essentially. And so that we can allow the bodily sensations that come up, notice that it's about the past and then still hold the space in the moment. So I think what you said about if you haven't had the space held for you, if you were smacked, so many of us were smacked, uh, sent to our room, you know, it's like, if you're going to cry, go to your room or good girls don't cry or boys don't cry. Any of those yeah. kind of very unhelpful platitudes or sayings. So we were shamed for our emotions. There was no kind of, I think that in a, for a lot of people, a whole section of the emotional kind of, if you think about a feeling circle or feeling wheel, the whole like part that's deemed to be negative in inverted commas, because no emotion is actually negative was just, you were shamed and sent away. And so the connection was broken. So as a small child, you feel deeply kind of unsafe then, you know, you've been banished and abandoned for having those feelings. So you learn over time not to have those feelings or to dissociate from them, to shut them down and just to kind of notice how your parent needs you to be so that you can still remain in connection with them because children are very, very adaptive. And we do, it's very, it's too kind of, disconcerting and discombobulating to think about our parent when we're a child as, oh, you're not being a very good parent. You're not holding space for my emotions. So we think we're bad. Exactly. So then when your child or my child, our children have a big meltdown, our body goes into that same response and goes, oh, this is danger. It's like a big red alert. This is danger. I need to shut this down at all costs. So I've actually observed people in shopping centers where they try and shut their children down. And then you can see them going into their inner child. They start to plead and beg with their child to stop it. But if we can just sort of say to our children, you're having such a tricky time and just kind of be on the floor with them and look in their eyes. And that doesn't work for all children. Some children want to be left alone. But if we can just be a loving, co-regulating presence. So I think remaining in the same room is really helpful and getting down to their level so that their their threat response is not triggered. If you're below the eye level, that's really helpful. My girls respond really well when I just say, oh, this is so tricky. You, you know, you're feeling so cross. You didn't like that. You didn't like that. I said I was turning off the TV or the thing is, or you feel cross that Josephine got there first. That's one of my twins. Because <laughs> actually when you hold space for the feelings, the whole meltdown resolves a lot quicker. Right. It's not even that complicated, really, to actually can narrate what's going on. It's just to say, "Oh, you're feeling really cross. You're really angry that I that I did this, or you're angry you didn't get the blue cup, or you're angry about this, or you don't want to get out of the car, or you don't want to get into the car, or whatever." And to kind of hold space for that, and then there is often a need for a limit or a boundary around, you know, I understand it's hard for you, and we still need to go upstairs for the bath, or and you still need to get into your car seat, or whatever that is. But I think that. First of all, in order to do this, we actually have to notice when we haven't done it and to bring awareness to what was going on for us. And then the next time it happens, we notice, oh God, my body feels like it's on fire. And actually to kind of go, okay, but I'm not actually on fire and I'm safe now. Hmm. And then maybe we can tolerate our child's meltdown for one minute and be present for them. And then the next time, maybe it's 90 seconds. And then the next time we can go, okay, I'm going to wash my face with cold water and wash my hands because that gives me gives me a bit more presence with my child and I'm just going to sit on the floor with them and be. It's such a tender process that we have to go through with ourselves because so many of us, it's very difficult to tolerate our own imperfection in this space. 
I think. Yes. Very difficult because we have this thing about, oh, I'm ruining them. I'm ruining them. Oh, I'm destroying their lives because I can't hold their feelings. But we have to be so gentle that this is, this is like the, the paradox of parenthood that we, we want to do this for them and we can't get it perfect. And we're learning at the same time and we didn't have it done. So we're trying to build up skills, you know, that we, that we don't have. We're being flooded with our own implicit memory. So we're having emotional flashbacks in the moment. And we're trying to be present with this like toddler who's probably like red in the face and like <laughs> screaming on the floor. So I just needs like bucketfuls of self-compassion. Yes. Practice, tons of practice. Yes. And I am so glad that you're saying this. And it's just making me think as you're talking about so many experiences that I know a lot of mothers listening may have, especially when it comes to food and feeding kids. And I think that especially for so many of us who are in eating disorder recovery, a lot of these feelings can be triggered around feeding behaviors with our children or just engaging with them around food. Like when a child's refusing to eat or if we catch our child sneaking food or if they're having a meltdown at the table because you know they don't like the food that is being put in front of them. And so many of us are dealing with that startle, like fight or flight reflex that's surfacing and we have no idea why. And we just know like, I feel uncomfortable. I just want to end this at all costs. And I I love how you're describing though, just the interaction and how we can begin to work through it more compassionately for ourselves. Because again, a lot of us had traumatic experiences in many different ways and around food with our nuclear families growing up. Just understanding there's so much that's happening here in these moments and holding compassion and being able to build tolerance and capacity for those moments. But also, you know, being compassionate for our younger self who didn't have what we needed to work through those experiences in a safe way. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's so important, Crystal, because if we had you, I mean, the food thing is absolutely huge. That idea that, you know, for many of us, food is love and some of us overeat and some of us restrict. And there's obviously a whole range of things in between. If you can imagine that if you had anything around your own family dinner table, around being shamed for eating too much or too little, or everyone was watching you in the moments when you are doing that with your child at their, at your table, all of that is going to be flooding back because the way our brains work, anything that's similar, um, it's like a, a highway lights up and all the, the past experience comes straight into the present moment. Can I share two things with you about food and my children? Please. I would love that. That would be okay. Yes. Um, we've had a real journey around food because I had premature twins. They were two kilograms each, really tiny. I wanted to breastfeed them, but it wasn't very successful. They both had tongue tie, which we only found out about a bit later. Mm. I really wanted to get them to be big babies because I thought that would be, that'd be better for them. Basically <laughs> they didn't drink very much milk. And so in our family, there's always been my husband and I wanting to get them to eat and they're much better eaters now. And they, and they, they do eat, but it plays out in many ways. You know, we went for lunch with a, with a, another family from the school my kids were at. And I knew that it was a specific restaurant when they go out, there's a lot of sensory experiences for them. It's an unfamiliar atmosphere. They don't really eat a wide variety of things. They might eat like lovely green salad here and other things. But when we're out, one of them eats bread and one of them eats French fries. But at this lunch, I think I wanted to create a different view of my children. I did. I didn't want to 
show what they were. So I proceeded to order them like a roast chicken and pizza, which I knew kind of they wouldn't eat. I also ordered the fries and the bread because I wanted the other parents to think my children were good eaters in adverted commas because, you know, it's, it's having that word good is so unhelpful. And I proceeded to do that. And then both my husband and I tried to get them to eat this food. And I was like, oh, this is so terrible. Like afterwards I was like, I'm totally in my own shame mm. trying to demonstrate something to the other parent about what our children were like. And in the end, my kids basically ate, my one daughter ate the fries, my other daughter ate bread. The other children also ate the fries and the bread. They ate some of the pizza that we eaten, but they didn't really eat their food that had been ordered for them either. They just ate the chips and the bread. But because I had focused on trying to like create this fantasy about what my kids would eat, because I thought it would make me look better. So you can see the interchange there of perfectionism and shame. And my own shame meant I tried to control my children to do something which I perceived was good. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, there's no, we don't have to attach any value either way to food. Because I've learned so much from you about that, Crystal, actually, like with sweets, like with, you know, neutralizing sweets. Because I really want my children to have a neutral relationship with sugar because I don't yeah. have that. Right. And then the other story is we went on holiday to Greece recently. And we always have this thing on holiday where my husband and I, I take a lot of snacks that I think that they will eat because I'm worried about them being hungry. And it makes me feel safe, I think, if I've taken things that I can give them. And we, again, at the beginning of the holiday, we went through this process of trying to control things or trying to force them to eat more or just kind of in trying to encourage. And again, it was in a hotel it was a different environment. It's a lot of sensory information coming into them all the time because there's lots of other things to look at. I noticed how I was starting to get stressed about what they were eating and, you know, would they get enough nutrition or blah, blah, blah. After about three days, I was like, we've just got to let go of this. The most important thing is the relationship at the table, like connection. I don't need to worry about the nutrition. If they eat just bread and chips the whole holiday, bread and French fries, and they did eat a bit of fruit and some vegetables, but then that's the way it's going to go. That's going to be on their holiday and it's going to be fine. Because otherwise I noticed you, if there's such a potential to turn the meal into like a battleground of you need to do that so that I can feel better about what's in your tummy basically, because I don't even know what's, you know, I don't know. I don't have an embodied sense of their, their tummies. Mm. Um, so then after about, I was like, okay, we've got to step away from this. And I sometimes feel like I need to relearn this every holiday to be honest. <laughs> So we stepped away from trying to just control anything and just chips and bread and some peanut butter and some fruit. And then it organically shifted a bit, fascinatingly. Wow. Right. (laughs) So I come back to that thing about relationships, that just being around the table in relationship with our children is the most important thing. And yeah. And if they're picky, they might only start eating different things when they're about 12. I've I've read some people around (laughs) that. Yes, and we're going to be doing a whole series just on selective eating. I have a select I have a couple of selective eaters and th- those experiences are one of those things that I think can be so triggering for us as a parent, right? And I couldn't have said it better, Kath, and I just so appreciate you sharing those stories because they're so relatable. And also it makes sense how out of our own discomfort we yeah. start to move into that realm of wanting to control and yeah. lose sight of the bigger picture, which is the connection and how connecting with our kids and really feeding is an extension of parenting and a yeah. form and through love. which we, and love, yes, and a form through which we can connect to them. And it has so little to do with the actual food itself. <laughs> you know, that's hard 
to remember and it's easy to lose sight of when we're in this moment of feeling so much shame and distress coming up for ourselves in that moment where we don't see our child eating or various interactions that can inevitably come up around the dinner table. But I'm so glad that you said that though, that you know it's about the connection, but also understanding that control piece and desire to control yeah. from a place of our own discomfort. Yeah. And I found reparenting myself around kind of reassuring ourselves that they will in time find other food. And also that we have to trust, I think it's such an important thing to trust our children that the embodied sense of I'm full or I'm not full. And you said something about, you know, if you offer a certain food and they don't eat it, I often take the approach now, I'm just like, okay, would you like a piece of toast? And I make them a piece of toast with peanut butter because I've also learned, my husband sometimes wants to take this approach of, well, if you're not going to eat this, you're not going to eat anything. And I'm like, how is that helpful? Like, how is that sending a loving message? But it is very triggering when you've cooked something, especially I find it really difficult. If I've said, do you want this? And they're like, yes, 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 we're going to eat it. And then they don't. And then I'm like, oh, my word, you people drive me crazy. But I found it just for my sanity and for like remaining in a loving place with them. Then I'm just like, okay, well, let's make peanut butter toast and whatever. Like I'm just going to remove all the judgment. And your page has helped me really with trusting that kind of giving them a sense of their own power is actually connecting them to their body sensations. Right. And we are trying to overrule that by saying, have one more bite, or you need to eat more. You have to have that before you can have that. Then we're actually disconnecting them from their power. That's right. We're dis- we're helping them dissociate. Exactly. And that's one thing that, you know, I like to re- remind a lot of the moms that I work with is that the only person living in your child's body is your child. And no matter how absurd it may look of what they've eaten. You know, like I always like to tell the story of a time where I remember we were eating dinner and we had watermelon and a lot of other various foods on the table. And, you know, part of this trusting process is providing food, but then allowing them to eat what they want from the foods that we've made available. And I remember my son ate like maybe eight slices of watermelon in that sitting and he like lined up all the rinds on the table and that was it. And you know, it's it's experiences like that that I think seem very simplistic, but understanding what's going on underneath the surface for a lot of us as moms where we start to regurgitate a lot of these messages that we grew up hearing or that we were told as children, right? Like that's not enough. You need to eat more. You can't just eat watermelon for dinner. Like that's not enough of a meal. You know, it's like that cycle of those messages that we were told as children that disconnected us from our needs and from our bodies and our abilities to trust ourselves. And then we find ourselves in parallel situations now with our children where we, you know, are questioning whether or not we can fully trust them. And I think it's even harder when you grew up learning that your body couldn't be trusted or that your needs didn't matter. And this is something I've heard you talk so lovingly about too. And I'm wondering if you could maybe share, what are some ways that we can practically attend to ourselves when we have been so disconnected from ourselves and our needs for so long? You know, because along along this topic of helping our children learn to trust their bodies, even if it makes us uncomfortable or even if it doesn't make sense to us. You know, so many of us are trying to figure out what that looks like for ourselves because 
we've learned to disassociate from our bodies. We were taught that our needs don't matter. We were taught that what we think and what we need are wrong. And so many of us still internalize that, you know, even today. And I think in so many ways, that's the service of the eating disorder that a lot of us use to cope, right? To disassociate from our body that now feels unsafe and wrong. And I know this is probably a, a whole topic that we could, you know, discover and unpack in another episode. But I'm wondering if you have just maybe a couple insights for the mother that's learning to rediscover her own needs and learning to come back into her body that she was told was wrong for so long. Yeah. I know that's such a tender place to be because, yeah, I really identified that pain around that. Are you talking about needs about food or needs generally? Yeah, I would, yeah, I would say generally maybe to start. Mm-hmm. And I know food can be a part of that, but generally, you know, and I, I'll just add this really quick. Like, I think a lot of us are inundated with this message of self care and take care of yourself as a mom and do all these things for yourself. But a lot of us feel disconnected from that because we don't know what that looks like from ourselves because we've been so disconnected from our bodies and our needs. I think maybe on the broader sense first. Yeah. And I think that that's a really huge thing that we've been disconnected from our bodies and our needs. So when someone says self-care, it sounds like another way to beat ourselves up because actually we have no idea what that really means. And deepening into a, like a connection with our needs is a very long kind of complex process. But on a very, if we distill it right down to a practical sort of some practical ideas, it's, it's things like how do we like to spend our time? What makes us feel good? What food do we like to eat? Which friends do we like to see? Which places do we like to go? When we're at home, where do we like to sit on the sofa? Do we always give up the good seat to like our husband or one of our children? You know, do we, do we always give up the good food or like the nice bit of, I don't know, if you roast a chicken and you like the leg or something, do you always give that to someone else? And I think it's on so many levels, just starting to tune into what do I actually want? Because, and I think I've said this in my podcast, Many of us actually do know what we want. Our first gut response, if I said to you, do you want a strawberry ice cream or a chocolate ice cream? You would know. You would just say, but you don't let yourself say that. Or you say you don't like ice cream, which maybe you don't because maybe ice cream is not such a good example. But we often do know what we want, but we just think we're not allowed it. Mm. And I think it's about starting to really explore that in small situations. So like the example of the sofa, like where do you like to sit on the sofa? If you sit on the sofa, what's the best place for you? What's the most comfortable? And let yourself go for that. Even if it's not where you normally sit, like notice that. Notice how it might feel really uncomfortable in your body if you've always let your husband sit there and now you want to have a chance to sit there. And I mean, that's a very little example, but I think it's in the little, we practice in the little places and then the things that seem insignificant, but Actually, so many of us disconnect from our own level of comfort, even in our own homes. Mm. And so we service everyone around us. And that's, that's what we want to do. We want to start servicing ourselves or serving ourselves. How do we, you know, when you make social engagements with friends, where do you agree to meet? How do you agree to meet? Do you always go and fetch all your friends to go for dinner and then drop them all off afterwards? You know, even if you're the one who doesn't drink or whatever it is. Do you go to the restaurant that it's an hour away because it's close to your friend? Like really starting to notice, you know, where you make those decisions. And with our children, you know, you and I talked before we started recording about being a working mom. And, you know, we have to make like decisions like, would you like to have some time during the day? 
to go for a swim? Would that help you with your mothering? Can you pay someone to look after your child then? Or can you do a mom swap with someone else so they look after your kid for an hour? Can you, what would help you to feel more grounded in your life? All of those sort of questions we can start tending to. And the biggest thing actually is giving ourselves permission Mm. to behave like we're important and believe that. And I often have clients saying to me, but I don't believe that. And I don't, I don't think I am allowed that because probably they looked after their mother's needs or so no one actually ever tended to them. And often you have to kind of fake it in the beginning. So you act as if you believe your needs are important. And then you really start to see that you are important and that actually there might not be as much pushback as you think from other people. Mm, I love that. It's such a beautiful description of just like self-discovery and learning to come back into yourself and to your body Mm -hmm. and like to befriend yourself and rediscover, you know, because for so many of us for so long, we've pushed aside our needs and attempt to appease what other people needed or what we thought other people needed in order to feel accepted and loved and cared for. And so that's such a beautiful description. I really appreciate you sharing just those tangible questions that I think can be really helpful to explore. Yeah. And I know we're running out of time, but I love to just kind of end our conversations around, you know, asking like, how are you caring for yourself as a mother right now? And with that, you also mentioned like eating foods we enjoy as a form of learning to care for ourselves. And I love that so much because so many of us, especially being disassociated from our bodies, start to ignore even the things that we like to eat and you know, the foods that we enjoy and that feel pleasurable. And that's such a big part of having a healthy relationship with food is eating not just for nourishment, but for pleasure. And so my second part to that question is, what are some of your favorite foods that you're enjoying right now, just for fun? (laughs) So, you know, I'm also in a, in a, in a eating disorder recovery because I've been a compulsive overeater Mm. and used food to push down feelings. And I'm really looking at my relationship with food and how that's protected me. I've built a sort of a, a layer around me to protect myself and a lot more in the pandemic, actually, and actually in motherhood. So I would always describe myself as an overeater, but in motherhood, I've put on a lot of weight, actually, to be honest. But I'm really being loving with myself about that because I can see that that's, it's helped me in some way. Hmm. One of the ways I care for myself actually is not to do anything extreme in terms of food, because I would previously have done a lot of things that may be considered orthorexia in terms of like, I'm going to do this, like this detox, and I'm going to be like 20 kilograms lighter or something in a few weeks or something. And I'm trying to not go into all those extreme places mm. and to really cultivate noticing what food does for me. The other night I had a quite a tricky bedtime with one of my twins and she was still up like after an hour and I was really starting to get really frazzled. So I called my husband to come and sit because we sit outside their room and kind of comfort them or be with them if they need anything. I came downstairs and there were these little chocolates that I bought in preparation for Halloween. And I consumed like three of them in in like quick succession. And I noticed, oh, look, I'm pushing down my feelings. I feel like bad that I couldn't withstand staying through the whole time. There was so much coming up for me, but I had to be so compassionate around that. So I'm really trying to care for myself in that way with compassion and with also trying to notice, okay, do I need that? Probably I don't. Maybe there's some feelings I need to tend to. So that's a huge part of my self-care. I go for walks. I do a lot of stretching. 
I try and get as much sleep as I can. I really struggle with early bedtime, but I'm really working on it. Yes. <laughs> I take magnesium because that helps with calming my nervous system. I take Epsom salt baths. Mm. So I find that really helpful to kind of soothe me and calm me. I go for craniosacral therapy, biodynamic craniosacral therapy. I find that very loving. I really try and tend to myself. I'm in a pro, I've got an autoimmune condition. So I'm in a process of trying to eat in a very loving way, mm. in a kind of a gentle way to kind yes. of help with that. I get frustrated with myself because I wish it would be all fast and perfect very quickly, but it's not. Right. And then in terms of loving food, so I'm really trying to make things that are tasty because when things are tasty, then I don't overeat. Mm. and to really be present for the food. I love turkey burgers. That sounds really boring, but I love, no. I love quinoa. Mm-hmm. I find quinoa is a very loving thing for me because rice I don't feel so good with in my stomach. Yeah. I'm rediscovering potatoes, actually, because I think that's a very good thing that's been much maligned. I love mm. sauerkraut. Mm. Um, I like ice cream, but I don't think that that's so great for me. So now I eat it in smaller quantities I'm trying to kind of and also actually one of the things I like some pasta and you know I think lots of us women have this idea that carbs need to be banished right but I try and eat like brown rice pasta sometimes at lunch and that feels loving that I can have something that I like because previously I've struggled with portion control I think because I've been trying to comfort myself mm-hmm. it's so it's like such a nuanced discovery you know absolutely and that sounds so lovely just this this path of rediscovering what feels good for you. And I love how you said just making it taste good. Yeah. I think that's something that a lot of us are missing and we're we're eating yeah. our food and not really tasting it. And that can be yeah. such a loving form of caring for yourself by making things that you enjoy and that taste delicious. Yeah. And I appreciate you sharing and just you being here. And again, thank you so much for your wisdom. Thank you, Kat. Thank you for coming on the show and helping us lift the shame. We appreciate you and hopefully can have you on again soon. That would be lovely. It's been very joyful. You've been listening to Grow Yourself Up, hosted by Kath Cunahan. We'll be back next week with a new episode supporting you to better understand and tend to yourself for more heart-centered, connected, authentic, and resilient living.